Welcome to Engage Boise. We hope that you enjoy this live recording of our Sunday service. Amen. Hey, before I invite Pastor Chase, uh, all of you know, of course, about everything going on in the news on the Middle East with Israel. And I uh, just want to talk about it just for a moment and then pray over it with you together. Um, read you a couple of scriptures first because when it, things get messy and noodly and everything seems on top of each other and there's a million opinions out there, uh, there's nothing better than the Word of God to guide us. Amen? So I was just thinking and praying about what scriptures the Lord would bring to my heart. One of them was this. Um, I pray to if I can get to the right spot. Proverbs 6, 16 uh, through 19, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Friends, right in the middle of that is that line, uh, hands that shed innocent blood. Six things the Lord hates, seven he detests. One of them is hands that shed Innocent blood. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 18 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. <clears throat> we read those verses and we think about Israel and we think about Hamas and we think about the Gaza Strip and all the people on both sides that are in the line of fire. And I can tell you this for sure. God loves and values every person. It does not matter your race, the color of your skin, what nation you live in, any of that. It does not matter. God values every single person. But also, we also know because we just read it, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. So God is against anyone who uh, seeks to exterminate an entire race of people. And we can say, it's based in the Bible, that that is not an okay thing. We can say what Hamas is attempting to do is evil. And we can also place all of this in God's hands because you read the stories about the counterattacks and all the things that lie ahead and all the innocent people. And what we know is that the Lord is against those who shed innocent blood. And you know what the great thing is, is I don't have to decide which blood is innocent. I can allow God to decide that. What I can do is pray and ask God's sovereign hand to be on it. That's what I would encourage you to do. That's what we're going to do this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much that we have this safe, perfectly temperate place uh, to come and worship your name. And that there are millions of people on the other side of the world right now that uh, do not have that same privilege. We Lord, uh, Lord, I thank you. Your word is true. Uh, you are against those who shed innocent blood, that you are for justice and that you love every single person. And we just pray, Lord, that your strong hand would go forward there. I pray that you would give guidance to every military commander. Lord, I pray that miraculous stories of deliverance would come out of this from every person that needs to be delivered. Lord, I pray somehow, some way that people would come to know you that would not have known you otherwise. I pray that people who uh, face death sooner than they thought, Lord, they would whisper your name. And they would see you in heaven, even if they never have before. Uh, Lord Jesus, we don't understand <clears throat> how this all works and, and how it is all going to work out. But, Lord, we know that you do. So we place it under your sovereign hand today. <clears throat> pray, I pray that you would place your, um, your strong right hand <clears throat> on the shoulder of every person. 
We place it in your hands, Jesus. Would you be in the middle of that conflict? We pray these things in your name. Amen. And friends, I just encourage you, keep it close to your heart. Pray when it bothers you. That's the best way to go about it. Try not to argue. Pray when it bothers you. <laughs> hey, I'm so excited. You haven't heard from Pastor Chase for a little while because he was busy. What were you doing? Oh, have, you guys having a baby? Yeah, I forgot. I didn't forget, actually. Had him here this last Thursday in the office. How did that go? It was good. The baby survived, you survived, and here you are, right? <laughs> so anyway, I'm so excited to welcome Pastor Chase to speak to us today, continue our series. Would you give him a warm welcome this morning? Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so this, uh, my wife got to go to the ladies' retreat this weekend, and so I was, it was just me and the boys, and uh, it was actually my first night with just me and, like, the boys, so we survived. It was awesome, and then I called in uh, the the A team, and they went and stayed the night with my parents last night. So uh, that was the plan all along. But uh, so I know that my parents are watching online. Thank you for hanging out with the boys and hi to the boys. But uh, I am so excited to be here today and get this opportunity just to speak. Uh, I love getting to talk about what Jesus is doing in people's lives because I think Jesus is kind of a big deal. And uh, I'm really excited to get to talk uh, and be a part of the series uh, and talk some about heaven in the real world because w- there's really nothing more that I love like more than seeing Jesus like intersect people's lives and get to see uh, maybe someone headed in one direction, then get to experience Jesus and then be going in a completely different direction. And it's so cool. Uh, and I actually had the opportunity to witness this this last week. We took our students to the uh, youth conference that we had. It was a ton of fun. Stayed up way too late. Didn't get a lot of sleep. Uh, and I beat all the teenagers at bowling, so that was really good. It was really good because our, our, yeah, <laughs> our new uh Network youth director is a really longtime friend of mine, and he got up in front of everybody before we headed to Wahoos and was talking a big game. He's like, hey, you guys, Chase is going to beat all of you. And I was like, man, I better not screw up now. So that was fun. But the really, really cool thing and, and the best part of that conference was I got to witness over 150 students pursue everything that Jesus was doing in their lives. Um, we had right around 30 students give their lives to Jesus, whether they'd done it for the first time or, or rededicated their lives. And that is like, that is a huge win, getting to hear about Jesus doing amazing things in student lives. Uh, and I believe that what happened this last weekend wasn't just a single moment, but it was something that would change the direction of students' lives. So I want to say thank you to all of you that pray for our students and support our ministry. Uh, I believe that good things are happening in our students' lives uh, and that Jesus is going to continue doing a good work. So today what we're going to do is we're going to continue on in our series. We're going to take a look at Jesus working in people's lives. And if you want to be ready, we're going to be taking a look at a story found in Luke chapter 7. So if you want to open your Bibles there, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, But before we go there, I want to give just a little bit of context, kind of set the scene for us so we know exactly what's going on. Uh, When we read the Gospels, we see that there's this guy named Jesus. He's kind of a big deal, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, But we see from the book of Luke, Luke says that when Jesus was right around 30 years old, he began his ministry here on earth. And so right around 30 years old, what Jesus began to do is he went and he found some buddies to come alongside with him. We call them the disciples. And he's like, hey, I'm going to teach you guys some important stuff. And then he would go around from town to town and he would go and visit the synagogues or like the local church. Uh, And at the synagogues on Sunday mornings, uh, what, or on 
on the Sabbath, they would gather, and then he would speak to them, uh, and he would take his turn to speak to the crowds there. And the Bible's really clear. Anytime he does this and he goes and speaks, it says that the people were amazed by the way he spoke, because he spoke as one with great authority. Right, the words he used and the things he said, there was power and authority behind what he said. And not only would he speak with authority, but he would also do things like challenge the norms of the religious leaders of the day. Pastor John talked about this, uh, the whole idea of like not working on the Sabbath where you could like go to someone's doorstep, but you couldn't like cross the threshold of the door because that would be considered working. He would challenge ideas like that, uh, and he would turn people back to the heart of God. And so that was really his purpose, was pointing people back to who God was uh, and fulfilling that. And not only would he do this and just like stir things up a little bit, he would back up these claims that he made by doing things like performing miracles. The book of Luke before chapter 7 records a variety of different miracles that Jesus performed. Things like uh, driving out evil spirits from people that were possessed. Uh, He healed the sick. He cleansed people from leprosy. He caused the lame to begin to walk and he began raising the dead back to life. So Jesus is going around, spending time, speaking to people and he's performing these miracles. And if someone is doing that, word is probably going to get out. And so that's what the Bible says, is that word got out and people began to pursue and seek after Jesus. And they're like, we want to know what's going on. We want to hear about all that's happening. Because I'm hearing these crazy stories and I want to see it for myself. And so that's where, where we're at at this point in the book of Luke, is word has begun to spread. People are checking out to see who Jesus is and what he's all about. And our story today is going to pick up in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. It says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So as I said, Jesus is going around and word is spreading. And this specific Pharisee, who the Pharisees are, it's important we understand what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee is someone that would have been a part of this religious group or this leadership group. Uh, And they were this party that was well known for being legal experts. They knew the Old Testament law. And they also believed that they should strictly follow the law and these traditions that their forefathers had. The Pharisees prided themselves in their separation from anything that was unclean or sinful. And so when you would see a Pharisee, you knew that that was a special person. You knew that they knew the word. You knew that they knew how to behave and that they lived this specific type of life. And you knew that if you weren't living that way, they didn't want a whole lot to do with you. And so we see this Pharisee. Right? There's this guy, Jesus, that's going around and challenging all of his traditions and these thoughts that he has about life. And he decides and says, you know what? I've heard enough about this Jesus. I want to meet him for myself. And so he invites Jesus over to his house, and Jesus gladly accepts the invitation. And so our scene is this place now. Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. He's reclining, and they're eating dinner together. And then picking up in verse 37, it says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So we see at some point during the dinner, there's this crazy situation that shows up. I don't know about you, but I don't have people like come barging into my house very often. And so I'm sure this was not a normal thing. 
But we see that it says Jesus is reclining at the table, and it's important that um, we understand a little bit of, like, the cultural context here. When we think of eating dinner at a table, we often think of, like, a, a tall table with chairs and stuff. That's, that's not what they were doing. The tables at this time would have been really low to the ground, more like kind of like a coffee table maybe. Uh, and Jesus, it says he's reclining. He would have been laying on his side with his feet pointing back behind him. That's why it says that the woman came at his feet. And so they're hanging out, eating dinner together. And it says this woman who is known as a sinner. So this woman had a reputation. When she walked in the room, people knew who she was. And they didn't maybe know her name. They didn't know uh, what she was there for, but they knew about her past. They knew the things that she had done. And now the Bible doesn't say exactly what kind of life she had been living. It doesn't say um, the sin that she was known for. A lot of people uh, assume that she might have been a prostitute or something like that. But all we know is that there was something about her past, something about her life, that she was defined by a decision that she had made at some point in her life. So this is all we know about this lady, is that she was a sinner and that she was defined by that. And now this woman, she would not have been allowed in the Pharisee's house. As I said, Pharisees prided themselves in trying to remove themselves from things that were sinful or unclean. And so I would venture to guess she was an uninvited guest, right? The Pharisee invited Jesus. He probably brought along the disciples too, and he was probably okay with that, right? He's like, Jesus, how many we got for dinner? And Jesus is like, me plus 12. Uh, Jesus probably doesn't mention the woman, because I don't know if Jesus knew she was going to be there at the moment. But she shows up uninvited, and she lets herself in. I don't know if there was a guard at the door or not, but somehow she gets there. She pursues Jesus. As I said, we don't know a whole lot about her past, but apparently she had heard or maybe even seen Jesus before. Right? Maybe she got to experience a miracle that Jesus performed in her life. Maybe she was on the street and saw Jesus raise the dead boy back to life. Maybe she saw uh, someone cursed with leprosy be healed and be made clean. And she saw that their lives were changed because of Jesus. And so apparently this woman had heard or either seen Jesus before and there had been a change in her heart where she decided, hey, Jesus is special. And I want to give my life over to Jesus. It's pretty evident that she has made this decision already because she comes in and immediately she's weeping. Uh, and we see that these aren't tears of like regret and shame, but instead they're tears of recognizing how important Jesus is. And so she pursues Jesus and she comes in and says, I've got to give Jesus everything I've got. And now I would say normally we probably shouldn't follow the example of someone that is labeled as a notorious sinner. Like, as a youth pastor, I don't tell our students to go find, like, the kid that's out smoking dope in the backyard to go hang out with them and, like, do what they're doing. Normally, it's probably not good advice to try to do what sinners are doing. But we see in this case, this woman is actually setting the perfect example for how we should behave. See, she didn't let anything stop her from reaching her Savior. Right? She didn't let her past, the thing that defined her, stop her from going and pursuing Jesus. She didn't let uh, the society around her saying that you don't deserve to be around Jesus stop her from going to see Jesus. She didn't let the Pharisee or his household or his rules stop her from going and seeing Jesus. And so she didn't let anything stop her from reaching her Savior. And I really think this is an attitude that we need to learn to begin to put on. Maybe we have uh, a label like this woman and we would say, you know, I don't know if I deserve Jesus or I don't know if Jesus really wants a whole lot to do with me. But Jesus would say, come and pursue me and meet me where I'm at. 
And so we see that she goes and she pursues Jesus. She finds him, and she does this really weird thing where she goes and begins washing Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume in her tears. And now this would have been kind of an awkward scene, and we, we read this and uh, we actually see like a comparison to when David was anointed by Samuel as king. She's now anointing Jesus as king of her life. And now it's worth noting that there's actually an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman in every single gospel, um, but not all four accounts are actually talking about the same thing. And so um, it's important that we recognize that this event specifically that we find in the book of Luke is one that stands separate from the other events. This event takes place likely within about the first year of Jesus' ministry. We know that because uh, at this point John the Baptist is still alive. And the other events we read about, the anointings, they take place uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. And so it can be a little bit confusing keeping track of those two things. As I said, we don't know anything about this woman other than she was a sinful woman. A lot of people assume that she might be Mary uh, or Martha even. Most, a lot of people really assume it's Mary, but there's actually no credible reason why we would assume that here. So all we know is she's a sinful woman. She's given her life to Jesus, and she's pursuing Jesus. Now, as I said, I'm willing to bet this would probably be a pretty awkward situation. I don't want anyone touching my feet, right? Like, I say, I, we talk about this idea of washing feet with the teenagers. Like, feet are gross. And they're gross today, and we have things like socks and soap. Je in Jesus' time, they walked around in sandals, and they had dirt roads, right? So this is a, a, an interesting situation. And if we could put ourselves in the situation for just a moment, like, imagine you're sitting there at the table, You've got Jesus sitting there, uh, and he's, like, doing all this crazy stuff, and you're wondering what he's really all about. You're learning about who he is. You've got the Pharisee who's sitting there, uh, who you hold in this high regard. You're in his house, so you're, you're on your best behavior because you don't want to upset the Pharisee. You've probably got Jesus' disciples that are hanging out there, and they're still figuring out what it really means to follow Jesus. And then this woman, you don't know her name, but you know her reputation. She shows up. And she starts bawling and washing Jesus' feet. And I'm sure that the Pharisee would have looked at this lady uh, who had come uninvited into his house, and he would have been fuming that she would have even dared step foot in his house. He's probably thinking things like, great, now my house is unclean. Now the place that I live, I don't even feel comfortable in. I don't think she deserves to be here. I'm sure he's mad that she would dare step foot in his house, let alone touch Jesus. Jesus is sitting there while the woman's washing his feet and weeping, and we actually don't get to see a ton of reaction about Jesus in this moment. I don't know if he's just like, yep, this is something that happens, or if he's like, why are you touching my feet? Right? We just know that he's there. We know that he's not uncomfortable with the situation. The woman doesn't care about anything that's going on in the world at all. She doesn't care that the Pharisee's mad. She doesn't care that the disciples are confused. She doesn't care about anything other than pursuing Jesus. And so we see in the midst of this awkwardness, fortunately, Jesus kind of breaks the situation a little bit. Continuing on in verse 39, it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. Now, it's important to recognize that, that he said to himself. He doesn't say this out loud. This is just a thought that he has that crosses his mind. If this man, he's talking about Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Did you catch that? He thinks this in his mind, 
and Jesus speaks to the thing that he's thinking. See, Jesus is Lord of all, and he knows exactly what's going on in the situation. He says, Simon, uh, he's not talking to Simon the disciple here. The Pharisee's name is Simon. Simon was a common name at this time, much like we have a whole bunch of Johns that come to church here. They got a bunch of Simons hanging out. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. So we see a glimpse of the Pharisee's intent for having Jesus come to the house. As I said, the Pharisee was a religious leader. They prided themselves in in sticking to the status quo. uh, And he was interested in who this Jesus guy was that was challenging the things that they'd been teaching. And we see that uh, his intent for having Jesus there might have not been the most pure. And in fact, he didn't quite believe all the hype because he asked that question. He says, if this man were a prophet. So right there, he's doubting who Jesus was and whether or not he was actually sent by God. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we see he immediately questions the reality of Jesus being a prophet or a religious leader. Because in his mind, any religious person that is close to God would never associate with or let alone let a sinful person touch them like this woman is doing. And as I said, Jesus, being the Son of God, knows the thoughts of the Pharisee, and he addresses the Pharisee right there. See, Jesus is well aware who this woman is. Jesus knows the reputation that she has. He knows the things that she's done. He, he knows who she is. He knows her past. And so he, he addresses the Pharisee, and, uh, and there's something interesting here. I'm sure that Jesus felt the tension in the room. Like, it, it's awkward. People don't come in storming in and washing people's feet all the time. And so I'm sure Jesus felt the tension in the room, but he didn't allow the situation to affect him. He didn't allow the situation to throw him off of what he was trying to accomplish in that place. And now this is something that's important to notice here, is that Jesus was completely comfortable being in the presence of both the religious leader and the notorious sinner. See, Jesus didn't allow the situation he was facing to change how he felt about it or to change who he was. Jesus was completely comfortable with both these two sides of the story, of the religious expert who seemed to have it all together and the sinful woman who seemed to have nothing put together at all. And I believe as a church, I think it's important that we foster an environment when people step foot in here that both the religious expert and the notorious sinner feel welcomed in this place. I don't think, uh, as we see, that Jesus um, is okay with people living in a lifestyle of sin, and he calls them out of that. But I think it's really obvious the way that Jesus lived is sinners were attracted to Jesus. And in fact, so much so that one of the things the Pharisees accused Jesus of was being a drunkard because he spent so much time around people who are known for being drunkards and things like that. And so Jesus was completely comfortable in that situation. And now, on a side note of that, if we're going to be a church like that that welcomes both saints and sinners, uh, it's going to make for an interesting situation because the Pharisee was not comfortable with the sinner there. And I'm sure that the sinner was not comfortable with the saint, right? There was that tension there, but that's okay because the power of the gospel is greater than that tension. And so we see in that situation, Jesus, he addresses the Pharisee and he teaches him something important. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells this story. He says, two people, this is verses 41 through 43. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So one owed them 10 times more than the other one. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. See, Jesus calls out the Pharisee in his attitude by telling this parable, and it's pretty easy to see the, the comparison in the room to what's going on in this story, right? Jesus says there's one person who owes a whole lot of money to this banker, right? And it's pretty obvious that would be the sinful woman. And then there's this one who doesn't owe very much at all. They've got it all pretty much together, but they're just a little bit short. That would be the Pharisee in this situation. And so the people in the room, they're getting this story. Like, they're understanding what's going on and what he's talking about. And now there's something really interesting about this story. Is even though one owed a whole lot and one owed just a little bit, both of the people were guilty of sin and both were completely forgiven in the situation. No matter if it was a whole lot that they owed or just a little bit, the banker forgave both of them. Both the woman and the religious man in this story are forgiven for the things that they've done. And this is an important thing that we need to understand about Jesus, is that Jesus' grace is sufficient for each and every single sin. Jesus' grace is sufficient for each and every single person. Romans chapter 3, 23 through 24 says this, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have been For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now we see from the story Jesus teaches, and we see from Romans here, it teaches that everyone is actually a sinner. Whether or not you're known by your sin, or you're known as someone that seems to have it all together, it doesn't matter. You've still got something going on in your life, and we all fall short. And that everybody is in need of a Savior. Once again, whether you're known by your sin or you're known as someone that has it all together, you are in need of a Savior. And that everybody is offered the grace that God gives through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And this is the power of this story is that neither person earned the grace that was given, but instead it was freely given by the one that was owed. And so we see continuing on in verse 44, it says, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. We see, apparently, Simon the Pharisee had not been a very good host. Tradition and and what you would normally do if you invited someone over to your house, as soon as they walked in the door, you would have a servant there who would have a bowl of water and a a towel or something, and they would wash your feet to kind of help clean you and so that you would feel comfortable in the house. Uh, A lot of times, if it was uh, a rich person or a Pharisee like that, they would also put oil on your head as a sign of peace and prosperity. Uh, And plus, it's like really hot there, and your head's probably feeling kind of sunburned. So they would help you out there, right? They would do things like that. They would greet you with a kiss, uh, which for Americans, we're like, that's weird. Why would you kiss people? Especially people like post-COVID. We're like, let's not kiss, right? Um, 
But we see that this is a cultural tradition. We see this even today in places like if you go to Italy and you walk into a church, they're going to kiss you on the cheek and like say, hey, welcome here. And so we see all of these cultural norms, these traditions, the things that the Pharisee was all about fulfilling, these traditions, right? He didn't do any of them. So it's really evident in that, not only in the way he's thinking about Jesus, he doubts that Jesus is really a prophet, but in the way he behaves towards Jesus, he's doubting that Jesus is actually someone of importance. And so Jesus calls him out on that, and he says, hey, Simon, this woman who you look down upon, she's treated me way better than you have, because the love she's demonstrating is a, is a result of the forgiveness of her sins, Right? And I, I love, not only does Jesus call him out on that, I love the question that Jesus asks Simon. And this is the important one that we need to look at today. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? And now it's really obvious, Simon sees her. As I said, Simon's freaking out because he's like, what is this woman doing in my house? What is this sinner doing in my presence? How dare she step foot in here? I can't believe she's here doing this. How could Jesus let him touch her? Or how could Jesus let her touch him? All that, right? He's, he's got all these thoughts, and it's obvious. Yes, he sees the woman. But I think Jesus is asking a deeper question here. He's saying, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see what she's doing? Do you see her love? Do you see her repentance? Do you see her devotion? David Gutzik says this, Simon the Pharisee did not see the woman as she was, a humble sinner seeking forgiveness, pouring out love for Jesus. Because he looked at her as she, had, as she had been a notorious sinner. It's important we catch that. He saw her for what she'd done, not for what she was doing in the moment. And I believe one of the best things about turning our lives over to Jesus is that we're given a new life. When we surrender to Jesus, we are no longer what we once were. We are a new creation. We've been made into something new. And we now are a reflection of Jesus in what we do. The things that may have defined us beforehand no longer define us because of what Jesus has done. See, we're in, we are no longer just sinners in need of a Savior, but we are now saints because of our Savior. Our actions, our past didn't change, but there was a moment where something changed when Jesus made us into a new creation. So we are no longer defined by our sin, but we are now defined by our Savior. And I think this is one of the really important points that we need to draw from this story, is that we are changed when we have the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. But I think that there's actually a deeper side to this story, something else that we need to consider. I would hope when we read this story, we would all see ourselves as the woman in this situation. That we would recognize that we were sinners in need of a Savior. And that we have received salvation through what Jesus Christ has done. And we want to pour out all of our affection and our love and our joy and everything we have. We surrender to Jesus. That we are repentant sinners wanting to shower that on Jesus. But I'm worried that from time to time we may actually be Simon. That when we put ourselves in this story, we think, oh yeah, I'm the woman. But there might be times where we would actually be the one sitting at the table like Simon saying, who is this woman thinks she is? I'm worried that we might be someone that is too quick to cast judgment on others and see them in the wrong light. And I would wonder this morning if Jesus asked us this question about how we see people on a regular basis, we might respond. If Jesus came up to you and asked, do you see that person? We might say, yeah, I see that person. Like, they're there. I'm not blind to Jesus, right? But Jesus would say, yes, I know you see that person, but do you see that person? 
Do you see deeper than what's on the surface? Do you see their many sins? Do you see their mistakes? Do you see their hopelessness? Do you see their depravity? Do you see the way that society has labeled them? Do you see that there is no hope? Or do you see that they are in need of grace and mercy? Do you see that I offer them a transformed life? Do you see their need for me? And the question really is, is do we see people as Simon did, defined by their past and their actions, by their reputation, by the way society has labeled them, or do we see them as Jesus did, someone in need of a Savior? Now, a couple weeks ago, we actually had a conference here at the church, and the speaker um, shared a little bit about the loss in our community, and I I went and stole some of his stuff because it was good stuff. So he talked about Ada County, right? And uh, if you go and do a a search for how many people live in Ada County, there are roughly a half million people that live in the county, which seems like a whole lot of people, a whole lot more than there used to be. But if you go and and do some uh, surveys, there were some studies done right around 2020 looking at uh, people of faith and how they live. And the studies found that there are roughly 150,000 people in Ada County that are adherents to Bible-believing churches. Now, it's kind of hard to know exactly who has really surrendered their lives to Jesus and not, but this is just people who would go to church or attend a service on a regular basis. There's about 150,000 people in this county that belong to a Bible-believing church. And so what that means is there are 350,000 people in our county, our neighbors, that likely aren't Christ followers. There are 350,000 sinners, as this woman was, that don't know Jesus yet. And now what that means is roughly 70% of our county doesn't know Jesus. And that sounds pretty bad. And if we were Simon and we look at those stats, we would say, man, that is a bad place to live. Like three quarters of the people don't know anything about serving God. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be there. I don't feel comfortable there. Most of the community is full of sinners that need to go and get their act together. But I believe Jesus would look at a situation like that and he would say, look how great the harvest is. Look at the potential that is there. Look how many people have an opportunity to experience the grace that I offer them. 70% of the people don't know me there yet. And it's like this story, I'm sure if you've ever been in church for a while, you might have heard this before, the story of the two shoe salesmen. There was the shoe company that heard about this far-off land that had people there. And so they sent two people to go check it out and set shop up there. And so as the two salesmen went there and they looked around and uh, they noticed that, like, nobody was wearing shoes there. And so the first salesman comes back to the company and says, ah, it's not worth going there. Nobody wears shoes. Like, we're not going to make any money. Uh, it's not a trend that's caught on there. Like, we're not going to do anything. The second salesman comes back and he says, hey, give me every single shoe you've got because nobody has shoes yet. And I am going to go sell shoes to every single person there. When we look at our community and we see that 70% of the people living next door to us don't know Jesus yet, I think we need to put on the mind of Jesus instead of the Pharisee because the Pharisee would say, look how bad things are there. Nobody's got shoes on. But Jesus would look at our community and say, look how great the potential is. Look how many people could come and experience the grace that I offer them. The speaker at the conference a couple weeks ago said this, the unclaimed in our community are not a problem. They are an opportunity. See, instead of seeing the lost in our community as an issue, we see them as an opportunity for heaven in the real world moments to take place. 
In case you didn't know this, there is no maximum occupancy for the number of people that can fit in heaven. Like, God will make more room. In fact, Jesus says, I've gone up there to go and build a room for you. Jesus is in the process of making more room. And so when I think of that idea that there are 350,000 people in our community that don't know Jesus yet, I think it's important that we can get excited and say, you know what, I'm excited that that's an opportunity for people to know Jesus, but I can't reach 350,000 people. I can't even hardly reach uh, my family, right? Like that idea of reaching 350,000 people sounds like a whole lot. But I'll tell you this, I don't think Jesus has called you to reach 350,000 people. I think he's called you to reach one. Start with one. And if we can start with one, we can begin to see the work of Jesus Christ take place in people's lives. Now, it's important to remember that it's not us that is saving people. You have no power to save your lost neighbor. You can't do anything because it's Jesus that does everything. We are the ones that are called to bring the message, and Jesus is the one that brings about the change in people's lives. And so the way this looks in our lives, if we're going to choose to be like Jesus and say, you know what, instead of looking at the sinful woman and saying, that is a woman that has messed her life up and she has no hope. Instead of looking like that, we look at people and we say, all right, that is someone who has done some bad things. And in fact, Jesus says, uh, he talks about the woman and he says, her sins are many. Like Jesus, he's not denying the fact that she has sinned a whole bunch, but he sees her and says, there's potential for change there. And so what this looks like in our lives is maybe we start, instead of trying to reach 350,000, we start with our neighbor that lives next door to us that wakes us up too early in the morning when he's mowing the lawn, right? When he's getting on our nerves and it's like, dude, do you really have to work on your car at midnight? Or when he allows his weeds to grow too high and then you got dandelions in your front lawn and you're just like, man, could, if God could just do something with that guy. I think God would be saying, I am trying to do something. I'm trying to share the love of Jesus with them. It starts with sharing with the people that we live next to. It starts with the coworker that always gets on your nerves. You know that one when you show up to work and you're like, I hope they called in sick today. It starts with the coworker that steals your food from the community fridge. Right? These are quote-unquote sinners. These are people that need the grace of Jesus Christ. It starts with the coffee barista that always screws up your order or purposely misspells your name every single time on the coffee cup. See, there are opportunities all around us for people to get to know who Jesus is and experience moments where heaven really comes to the real world. In reality, the place that it may actually start is with your good friend or a family member that you would say is a pretty good person. That maybe uh, they aren't defined by a sin, but you would admit they probably don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And it starts with a conversation with them saying, hey, can I tell you about what Jesus has done in my life? Because I think if we look at people and we don't have an urgency to share the message of Jesus Christ, we're being the Pharisee and saying, you know what, they don't actually need to know about Jesus. We're saying, you know what, they're too far gone or they don't deserve to know about the grace of Jesus. I know I'm stepping on toes. I'm stepping on my own toes because I need to hear this. I think we need to learn to see people the same way that Jesus did. We need to put on the lens of the gospel and see people as an opportunity for salvation to take place instead of someone that is too far gone. So we see continuing on in verse 48. It says, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. How beautiful is that? The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And I appreciate Al sharing this morning talking about blind Bartimaeus, right? When the people said, hey, dude, be quiet. 
Jesus is walking by, you're, you're messing things up, and he yelled all the more, right? And then Jesus calls him, and he says, hey, your faith has saved you. We see the same thing here. This woman, I'm sure she faced obstacles in coming to know who Jesus was. But as I said, she didn't let anything hold her back from going and seeing her Savior. And so it's because of that passion that her faith and, and what she had done, she received these words from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And now this is a hard statement to reconcile with sometimes because the thing is, is we don't do anything to earn it. It can be really easy for us to receive something if like we've earned that. Like when you get a paycheck, you don't go like, oh, wow, I'm so surprised I got this. We go like, no, I put in the work. I deserve this. But if someone comes up to you and freely gives you something that you didn't earn, it can be a little bit hard for us to accept sometimes because I didn't play a part in that. And to think that Jesus would say to us this morning, your sins are forgiven. That's a challenging statement because what that means is you need to surrender everything to him. And you don't get to play a part in making your sins being forgiven other than placing your faith in Jesus. See, she didn't get her sins forgiven because of the sacrifice she offered at Jesus' feet. She didn't have her sins forgiven because she went and changed the way she'd been living. She was still called a sinner. She received salvation because she simply put her faith in Jesus and believed that Jesus could make a change in her life. Chuck, Chuck Smith says this, Jesus is bringing to men a whole new relationship to God, a relationship that is based on faith and salvation through faith. See, we don't earn salvation. Our neighbors that don't know Jesus yet, they don't earn salvation. The person we look at that would be defined by their sin, they don't earn salvation. All they need to simply say is, you know what, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that Jesus is that Savior, and I can have my life changed because of that. And now it's certainly true. There are some people uh, that owe a whole lot of debt. There are some people that their list, if they came out and wrote out everything they'd done wrong, it'd be pretty long. There are some people that are defined by the life that they've lived up to this point but they can have their lives changed because of the power of Jesus Christ. And I love that about this story. Now, it's unfortunate we don't get to see, like, what happens in this woman's life after this situation. This is all we know about her. We know that she was a sinner, that she surrendered her life to Jesus, and she poured out everything she had at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if she went off and uh, began to share about what Jesus had done in her life. I'd be willing to bet that's what she did do. Because when you have your life changed by Jesus, you want other people to know about it. I don't know if she went and followed Jesus along with all the other disciples and, and she helped support the ministry like many women did at this time. Uh, I don't know if, if she fell back uh, into her life of sin at certain times and she remembered what Jesus had done. But I do know that her life was changed because of what Jesus had done. And she may have looked back and said, you know what, I was a sinner, but I am now a saint because of what Jesus has done in my life. And so this is how I want to wrap things up today. There's just a couple of questions for us. And the first question is this, is do you need the forgiveness that Jesus offers? Maybe you're here today and you are like this woman. And you're like, man, when I stepped foot in church, I thought I was going to get struck by lightning. Or I didn't think that I would be welcome here because my list is pretty long. Or I was afraid to come to church because people know the life that I've lived. Maybe you're in that situation or maybe you're like the Pharisee. And you're like, you know what? I've got life together pretty well. I don't do a lot of bad things. Like I obey the commandments and stuff. But whether you're in one camp or the other, the Bible is very clear that we all have come short of the glory of God. 
And the really beautiful thing is, is even though we've all come up short, God freely offers grace. And that we simply turn our lives over to him and say, God, would you do something with me? And God will meet us in that moment. And so this is what I'm going to ask. We'd all bow our heads and close our eyes just so we can focus for a moment. And as I said, my question for you today is, do you need the forgiveness that Jesus offers? You can have your life forgiven. You can have your past rewritten. And you can be made into a new creation when you surrender to him today. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything to receive it other than simply say, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died in my place, that you rose again so I could have my sins forgiven. Would you make me into a new person? If that's you, would you slip your hand up real quick? I'm not going to call on you. I just want to pray with you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And this is what I'm going to ask that everybody in this building, uh, we're going to say a prayer together. And these are... These aren't magic words or anything like that. We're just simply expressing what's going on in our hearts. And we're just going to pray together in agreement with those that are praying this, maybe for the first time or the millionth time. And we're going to believe that Jesus will meet us in this moment and he will make us into a new creation. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for today. I admit that I'm a sinner. But I believe what your word says, that you lived a perfect life that you died in my place, that you rose again so that I could be forgiven. I ask you to make me new, and I give you everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can look up here. If you prayed that for the first time, I want to encourage you to come talk to me after service. We've got uh, some resources we'd love to share with you, talk with you about like what it means to follow Jesus. Um, I love that this woman didn't have to go through a class or anything like that to receive salvation. But she simply said, hey, I'm giving Jesus everything. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know what I feel like I should do is surrender all I have to Jesus. And I think that's really what it's all about. So if you made that decision for the first time today or maybe the millionth time, I encourage you to come talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to chat with you. My second question for today um, is this, is who is someone in your life that doesn't know Jesus yet? Who is someone that you interact with on a regular basis that doesn't know Jesus? Maybe this is a family member. Uh, maybe this is a friend, a coworker. Um, maybe it's the barista at your Starbucks that you go to that keeps on screwing up your name. I want to challenge you, don't be like the Pharisee that would write that person off, but instead see them as an opportunity for God's grace to be demonstrated. Be willing to share Jesus with them and look for an opportunity for a heaven in the real world moment to take place. See, if we're going to see 350,000 people come to know who Jesus is, it's going to take a conversation on our part. As I said, we don't have the power to save people, but we do have the responsibility to share the message. And so I want to challenge you, take a step of faith this week. Pray for an opportunity to speak about Jesus in your friend or family or coworker or whoever's life. And allow Jesus to begin to do a work in their life. It can be as simple as saying, hey, uh, we've got this event coming up at our church called Glow and Treat. If you like candy, if you like games, like it's a perfect place for you to be. If you hate candy and games, we got other stuff. Don't worry, right? But it can be as simple as saying, hey, I've got this card. Would you like to come to, come to Glow and Treat and come check out what we're doing at our church? We also have um, back there at the booth, there are some cards that... Um, Say, love the family, change the world on the front, and on the back is just information on the church. Grab one of those and go to your coworker and say, hey, I would love for you to come check out our church sometime. I would love for you to come and hear about what Jesus is doing in our community. Uh, I think that 
it can be really easy for us to say, you know what, I, like, I don't know what to say. I don't think I have the right words. Uh, I don't think I have um, the ability to convince them to know that they need Jesus. That's not your job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in people's life. Our job is simply to say, you know what, I'm going to see that person as Jesus saw them. I'm going to see them as an opportunity for heaven to come into the real world, that Jesus would change their lives. So my challenge this week is um, what we're actually going to do is, and I know this is awkward, we're going to be quiet for just a moment. Um, Because unless we have practical application and we don't actually apply, if we don't actually do this, we're being like the Pharisee. The Bible actually says um, not doing something when you know you're supposed to do it, that's a sin. And so uh, my challenge, what we're going to do is we're going to be quiet just for a moment. And I want you to begin to think and pray about names of people in your life and commit this week to say, you know what, I'm going to take an active step and I'm going to reach out to them. I've got people in my life that I've already thought of, people that I know I'm going to invite to uh, Glow and Treat. So uh, I'm not just saying this and hoping you guys will do this. I'm going to do this as well. Um, But we're just going to be quiet for 15 seconds, and we're going to ask God would speak names into our lives that need to know about who Jesus is. God, I want to lift the names of these people that we are thinking of right now up to you, God. Lord, we know that, um, as your word says, that they are all sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, we know what your word promises, that you offer grace and salvation to everyone who calls upon your name. So God, I pray that we would take up the banner of Jesus Christ with us this week. That we would take a step of faith, maybe for the first time ever, and we would share about what you have done in our lives. God, we commit these names to you, we know. God, that we are powerless to bring about change in their lives. But God, we stand upon the power of Jesus Christ and we know that you can bring about life change. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts first and foremost. That instead of seeing people as sinners that are lost and in no hope, we would see them as an opportunity for harvest, as an opportunity for your grace to perform a work in people's lives. God, we pray that Uh, The upcoming event, the Glow and Treat, Lord, would be more than just a night where we get to hang out and have fun. Uh, But God, that you would perform the miraculous. That you would bring lost families, that you would bring lost souls, and that they would come experience the grace of Jesus Christ in this place. God, I pray this week that we would be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us, and that we would find boldness in sharing that every single place we go. We thank you for today. We thank you that your mercies are new each and every single day. We pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, It's so much fun getting to preach to adults because you guys, like, pay attention. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Don't forget, grab those glow and treat cards. Grab a glow and treat um, yard sign. Put that in your yard. Go and, like, spam your neighbors with those. Don't do that. Don't go put them in your neighbor's lawns without permission. But thank you so much for being here today. We encourage you. uh, Come check out Wednesday night. We've got something for everybody. Thank you for being here. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at engageboise.com. Have an amazing day.